You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Uh, hey, everybody. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown. and so glad that y'all are joining us, and uh, it's just good, good to see everyone. Oh, again, just I know I say it every week, but we really miss being together in, uh, <laughs> uh, physically. But uh, I don't know about y'all, but like it really does my heart good just to to see y'all's faces, to to see who's still you know is connecting with us and gathering together as a church family. It, it really is an encouragement to you, and so I mean encouragement to me. And so I want to thank you for being here. You're encouraging me <laughs> and I appreciate that. I hope our time together this morning will a- encourage you. Uh, so this week we, or last week, I should say, we kicked off a four week sermon series that we're calling the B-I-B-L-E. Is that the book for me? And uh, this series is a little different than uh, the type of series that we normally do. See, because we normally take a book of the Bible and we, and we either teach uh, from it or we teach through it like we did uh, with our Psalms of Summer series this summer. But this series that we're doing right now kind of explains why that's our normal practice. You know, because it's going to explain, this series will kind of explain why we put such an emphasis on teaching uh, the Bible on Sunday mornings and why we put such an emphasis on trying to encourage one another to develop habits of spending time in the Bible, reading it and meditating on it and applying it throughout the week. Now, if you grew up in church, you might, you know, feel like I already know why we do that. It's because we, you know, we believe that the Bible is God's word. And yes, that is true. <laughs> That's why we do it. That's what we believe. But if you didn't grow up in a church, or for that matter, if you, you, know, you just grew up, you might have a hard time uh, agreeing with that statement that the Bible is God's word. I mean, perhaps there's a good chance that somewhere along the way, somebody pointed out to you or you read for yourself some of the more difficult things in the Bible, and you found yourself having a hard time taking what the Bible says and reconciling it with the world you live in, or perhaps someone asked you a question about the Bible you didn't know how to answer, and it just caused you to really begin wondering and doubting about what the Bible is, and you found yourself, as a result, thinking, you know, is the B-I-B-L-E really the book for me. So our hope is that this series will address some of the important questions that we all have at one point or another regarding the Bible. And so last week, we started with this question. We said, like, how, how did we get this? You know, here, here's my Bible. You know, how did, we, how did we get this thing? And we start with that question because the world didn't get the Bible like you and I got the Bible. Because when you and I got our Bible, it came, you know, chaptered and versed and translated into English with complete with headers and cross references and like maps in the back. And, but like, that's not how the world got the Bible for the story of how the Bible came to be, as we said last week, actually began on the very first Easter. See, because uh, it was the historical event of Jesus' resurrection that set the Bible into uh, process, if you will. For as we saw last week, it was that event that moved people like Luke, first century doctor, and many others to investigate 
and draw up uh, an account of the life of Jesus. See, if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus, they would not have ever determined that it was important to actually document what happened. But because Jesus rose again, they did document it. Because they documented it, we eventually got the Bible. It was Jesus' resurrection that created a movement the church that produced documents like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the epistles of Peter and Paul and others. And these documents, as we saw last week, they were copied throughout the years. They were passed from city to city and church to church. And over many years, they were protected, even at the cost of people's lives, long before this you know, ever existed. Like when I say long before, I mean like 300 years before there was ever a fully compiled Bible. Now, given that that's the story of how we got the Bible, it makes sense that we would have some questions regarding the trustworthiness or the historical reliability of the Bible. I mean, just given how we got the Bible, it's very understandable to wonder, like, is our New Testament documents, are they really just highly embellished legends that evolved over hundreds of years before the very first Bible was produced? And so this morning, that's the big question I'll, I want to address. Can we trust that the New Testament is uh, historically reliable? Now, I'm going to focus on the New Testament today, and next week, Justin is going to take this question and apply it to the Old Testament. So don't miss next week's message on that. But again, today, the big question is, is there a reason to believe, can we trust that the New Testament is historically reliable? And <laughs> the popular, common answer to that question within our culture today is an emph emphatic no. <laughs> like, absolutely not. See, because for the narrative that has become commonplace within our culture today is that the New Testament documents, and especially the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, were concocted by the political winners within the church once Constantine the Great uh, uh, made Christianity the preferred religion of the Roman Empire, somewhere around 325 AD. And as a result, we can't really know what the original, true, you know, historical Jesus was like. For the idea that he claimed to be divine and that he did miracles and that he died on a cross and that he was resurrected, like all of those you know, ideas, they would say huh, those were just written centuries later by church leaders who were trying to consolidate their power and build their movement. And so we can't know what really happened for these documents that we have are not historically reliable. The problem with that view, friends, is that it's inaccurate. It's very popular within our day and age, but, it, but it's, it's full of fallacies. And huh, there are several reasons why. This morning, I just want to mention three of them for us, but there, there are many more. But just for us, for the sake of the, uh, this morning, let me just give you three that I would really encourage you uh, to chew on, to consider if some of the questions that I just raised are questions that you have. So the first uh, reason is this. Huh. The New Testament accounts 
uh, can, can be trusted as reliable because they were written t- too close to Jesus's life to be legends. See, the reason I say that is because they were written by eyewitnesses of Jesus or as a result of the interviews with eyewitnesses of Jesus's life, which is why, as we saw last week, Luke begins his account of Jesus's life in this way. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us or like the things that happened among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were what? Eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus being the guy that he was writing his letter to. Now, uh, here's what Luke is saying. I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I've checked what I've written with eyewitnesses. Now, the reason Luke could say that is because he wrote his account of Jesus's life about 30 to 40 years after Jesus's ministry, which means that when Luke was writing about Jesus, there were people who were still alive who actually saw Jesus with their own eyes. They heard what Jesus said with their own ears. They saw what Jesus did, which means that the people who read what Luke recorded had the ability to verify or, you know, re- or, or rebuke what he wrote. And that's significant. See, in addition, uh, the Apostle Paul, he wrote many of the letters, even close, many of his letters, even closer to the events of Jesus's life. Within 15 to 20 years after Jesus's ministry, and in his letters, they, they, they say things like this, like 1 Corinthians 15 says, for what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are what? Still living. The some have fallen asleep. Now, friends, the apostle, the apostle Paul could not possibly have written in a public document that 500 people saw the risen Jesus, and most of them are still alive, unless there really were hundreds of people who at minimum thought they saw Jesus alive. Or in Philippians uh, chapter 2, Paul uh, quotes a hymn that is uh, widely regarded to be a, a hymn that was sung or, or recited by the earliest Christian church. Uh, and so Philippians was written about 15 years after Jesus' life, but this hymn is thought to have actually date back to within just a couple of years after Jesus' life. And this hymn is all about Jesus Jesus's deity. It's praising Jesus for for being God and yet also being humble and serving us. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because uh, it means that Christians were worshiping Jesus as God 
and proclaiming Jesus' resurrection, not centuries after Jesus, but from the very beginning. See, though it has become popular thought that Constantine in 325 AD basically decreed that Jesus uh, was divine and then suppressed all of the evidence that Jesus was just a human teacher, the true evidence is uh, (laughs) that is completely inaccurate. That that The evidence doesn't support that common concept, that common narrative. See, think about it this way. If this week someone was to write an op-ed in the New York Times uh, claiming that Bill Clinton, who was president a little over 20 years ago, that during his presidency, Clinton claimed to be God, and then he died, and then he rose again. If someone was to write that article, it would not get any traction even in our crazy world that we live in right now. And the reason why it wouldn't get traction is because there are people who are still alive today who were alive when Clinton was the president. And we know he didn't say that and he didn't do that. See, eyewitnesses, they they are a great uh, check on whether things are accurate or not. Now, sure, it's true that you can write documents you know, 200 to 300 years after someone had lived and basically claim anything you want about a person. And certainly that was true back then, first century. But you can't say that Jesus was crucified and resurrected when hundreds and hundreds of people, both pro-Jesus and anti-Jesus, were still alive and could verify or refute what you have said. See, if Jesus had not been crucified if there had not been appearances after Jesus' death, if there had not been an empty tomb, if he had not made the claims these documents say he did, if those things had not happened, and yet these public documents went around claiming all of those things, Christianity would not have gotten off the ground. For these documents were written when living witnesses could have discredited them which means they were written too early to be legends. Now, there is an incredible amount of evidence and scholarship that supports this point that I don't have time to get into this morning. But I I do want to offer you a couple ways for you to study this a little bit more if this piques your interest or you want to know more about this. And so the first, I I think Justin's going to post a couple links on here. One is an article. Uh, that talks more about that when the gospel uh, gospels were written and dated and why we why we know they were dated at that time, and then another article is in, has, or the other link is a, a link to a book that um, I would recommend. It's it has become the most highly res- one of the most highly respected books on this topic. It's entitled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bachman, and if you want to really dive in, that would be a great book for you to check out. But uh, let, me, let me move on to the second reason why uh, we can trust that this, the New Testament documents are historically reliable and not legends. And that reason is this. It's because uh, the content within these documents are too counterproductive. It's too counterproductive to be legends. And here, here's what I mean. Um, Again, if you go back to the, the common narrative of culture today, the thought is that the New Testament doesn't give you what actually happened. 
that instead what you have in the gospels is what the church you know leaders the powers that that were wanted you to to believe happened and so that idea is that what's contained in the new testament documents is only included because what's there helped the powers that be consolidate their power and build their movement, the church. But one of the many problems, friends, with that idea is that if I was a church leader, or if you were a church leader living in 100 to 200 years after Jesus's ministry, and if I was concocting or editing stories in order to help my movement gain power, then why in the world would I include Jesus? in the garden of Gethsemane, pleading with the Father, saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And yet Luke, having done his investigation, writes that in to his account. Why would he do that? Why would I include Jesus asking to get out of going to the cross? Or why would I have Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in the shame and honor culture, those statements by Jesus would not help anyone join the Christian movement. So why include them? Or for that matter, if I was making up these stories, why would I record that all of the first witnesses of the risen Christ were women? For at that time, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible evidence in court due to their low social status. And yet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say that the first eyewitnesses were women. Now, if you were making that up, you wouldn't ever have had the women as the first witnesses. If you were trying to consolidate your power, you would never say that. That would in no way have helped your cause. Or to keep going, if, if you or I were making this stuff up in the first, and, you know, 100, 200, 300 years after Jesus' life, why would we make Jesus' disciples, who would become the apostles and the cornerstones of the church, of the movement that I would be trying to consolidate power for, why would I make them look like idiots so often? Where Peter denies Jesus three times where Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, betrays Jesus, where Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, doubts Jesus' resurrection, says, unless I can touch him, I won't believe it. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Why in the world would you make them look so dumb, so lacking of faith, such cowards? See, the only plausible explanation for those stories being in the text is that they actually happened. They don't help in any other way. They're totally counterproductive for helping the church leaders gain power. So, friends, for those reasons and many more, the New Testament documents are too counterproductive to be legends, in addition to being too close to Jesus' life to be legends. But let me give you one more reason why we can trust that the historical documents are reliable, and that's because they're too detailed in their form to be legends. See, one of the problems with reading the Gospels and concluding that they are myths is that they are nothing like ancient fiction. Tim Keller, in his fantastic book, Reason for God, uh, makes this point, all right? He notes how it wasn't until the 18th century that the genre known as like realistic fiction or the novel was actually developed. 
Now, realistic fiction is written almost like history, right? It's very detailed in its form. But in ancient times, legends and epics and myths were not written like that. They were not written like history. Myths and legends, they, they don't sound like Luke chapter 1 when he says, you know, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Like, they don't sound like that. Just think, guys, uh, back to your ninth grade English class, right? When you were reading Beowulf or the Iliad, did it sound like that? Of course not. Because Greek myths and Roman myths, that's not how they read. Uh-huh. C.S. Lewis, uh-huh, who's an expert in ancient literature, uh, says this. This is a great quote. He says, you know, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know none of them are like this. Of this, talking about the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. <laughs> now, uh, C.S. Lewis was a professor, and so you know professors can get a little condescending, you know, so he adds that little barb at, at, at the end. But here's, here's the point. These documents were written uh, too close to Jesus' life to be legends. And they are too counterproductive in their content to be legends. And they don't have the literary form of legends. See, they read like historical accounts because that's what they are. They include counterproductive details because those are the things that really happened. And they were written while eyewitnesses are still alive because, as I said last week, something truly extraordinary happened. Jesus rose from the dead. And it was that event that caused Luke and many others to record what happened so that people, including you and me, can know what actually took place. And friends, that is why they were written. And that is why they were copied and copied and passed around the Mediterranean Rim and beyond. And that is why people protected them and even died protecting them, as I mentioned last week. For these documents were considered precious and valuable and sacred from the very beginning, well before they were officially compiled into this book. In fact, uh, Darryl, uh, Dr. Daryl Bach, renowned research professor, DTS Seminary, where I went, and uh, you know, an all, you know, New York Times bestseller author, he says this about um, this, the, the historicity of the Gospels and when they were seen as sacred and valuable and precious. He says, the four Gospels were functioning as scripture within the church at large by the end of the second century. And by the beginning of the third century, 17 other New Testament books, including Acts and 1 Peter and 1 John and all of the Pauline epistles, were viewed as being used, being, were viewed and being used as sacred scripture. 
And that's significant because uh, that's a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea, and that is a hundred years before Constantine came to power. See, that means those books couldn't have been included in the Bible for political reasons or as an exercise of political power. Because when these books were recognized as sacred scripture, the church didn't have any power. Instead, the church was being persecuted by the people in power. You see, from the very beginning, the documents that make up the New Testament were circulated and they were copied and they were protected because of who wrote them eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, and because what they reliably communicated. And what do they communicate? Well, let me just quote from uh, the hymn in Philippians chapter 2, which as I mentioned earlier, Christians may have been reciting even just within a few years of Jesus' death and resurrection. There it says, who Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, friends, the reason why it matters that the New Testament is trustworthy is because there are only two options when it comes to the knowledge of the divine creator. Either option one is that we have revelation, or option two is we have speculation. Either he speaks or we guess. But because God wants us to know him, he has revealed himself to us, and he has reliably preserved his revelation so that we can know that he is so much better than we would ever dare imagine on our own. I mean, sure, we could speculate that if there is a God, then he must be powerful. But who would ever guess that he would not consider his power something to be used to his own advantage? Who would ever guess that he would make himself nothing, becoming a servant, and humbly dying in our place for our sins on the cross. But that's what he did. And because he did, and because we can know that that's what he did through the New Testament accounts of his life, we can enter into a relationship with him through faith, and we can know him, and we can enjoy him now and forevermore. Friends, praise be to God for reliably revealing who he is to us through his word. Let me close now with a time of prayer, and then we're going to take communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do praise you for uh, preserving, protecting, Uh, recording (laughs) these New Testament documents that we can know who Jesus is and we can know what Jesus did. And God, I pray that you would help us grow in our confidence and the reliability and trustworthiness of these documents that we would know with confidence that this is 
who you are, Jesus, that you did not consider equality with God something to be used to your own advantage. But Lord, that you, God the Son, humbled yourself and that you served us by going to the cross on our behalf. Lord, would you uh, make these truths come home to our hearts, fill us with great faith, that we would be moved, compelled to love you and love others with you. And Lord, that we would want to read your word and get to know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.